This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone, back to another edition of New Books in Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen, on the New Books Network. And uh, once again, I'm very excited. I made some connections through social media and found a, a fantastic book. Uh, so, you know, anyone decrying social media and Twitter uh, should really just, just get out there and, and, and try to find people that, are in, that you're interested in and that post interesting things. So, uh, without further ado, let me introduce uh, Peter Pevarelli, uh, and he recently wrote this book called One Turbulent Year, uh, China 1975, and this is a book where he's a foreign student in China during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, just my mind is blown just hearing this uh, description of the book, and uh, uh, just for, for connections, I, I, his blog, if you want to go check that out as well, it's sort of excerpts of the book, so if you want to get a little little more understanding or, or, you know, you want to read it before you, before you buy anything like that, um, go check out one turbulent year, China, 1975.wordpress.com. Uh, and you can also follow him at SI theorist, uh, at SI theorist. Um, also you can follow me at politics and Ed as always. So, uh, Peter, thank you for, uh, joining uh, new books in education. No problem. I'm uh, honored that you, uh, found me and chosen me for an interview. Absolutely. Well, I, when I, and you know, I have a personal interest in China. And, uh, so this is one of the reasons that I, that I wanted to, to hear this, uh, this interesting story, interesting tale. And, and I think, you know, because now you're years later, you're, you have academic roots. I, I think it's, it's especially important. Yeah, well, at that time, of course, everybody was amazed, not only that I went to China, but before even that I chose Chinese, let's call that, that uh, Chinese language and uh, culture as a, as a major, because what the, on earth would you be doing, could you be doing with a specialization like that? Because right. no one was doing anything in China, with China, about China. Right, right. And now that's quite different, of course. Absolutely. Well, yeah. let, let's set up what... Um so what are you doing right now? You're, you're, you're teaching at, at a university. Uh, can you just maybe give a, just a very brief, maybe uh, academic background about yourself? Kind of about? Yeah, well, as I introduced, I started learning Chinese, studying Chinese, and I was a freshman in, in 1974, so one year before. But before that, I had uh, learned Chinese on my own on a, in an evening course for three years, so I actually started learning Chinese when I was 14. Wow. Uh, and that was mainly, I was my main interest was languages, foreign languages. It was my fascination at that time. And uh, you know, in Holland, we study, we learn a lot of languages in school, including English, uh, which is good for the interview, of course, right. today, and French, German. I had Latin and Old Greek as well. It's called grammar school in Europe. But I wanted to learn some. Uh, uh, any any non any non European language and China Chinese was available in my hometown. It's a small town, and it was even the course was given in my uh, my uh, high school uh, building. Wow. So it was uh, the nearest non Western language that I grabbed, and from one thing came another. So my interest in China. So after three years, when I graduated from uh, high school uh, to uh, Right. Yeah. For Chinese was available, but nowadays I uh, I am teaching organization theory and uh, in as part of business administration course, so it's quite different. But I changed it somewhere in between. But I'm sure we can come back to that later in the interview. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just you know, want to set that up where um, 
you know, you, you, you do have an academic background, which potentially was informed by these experiences that you had when you were younger, uh, which, which I think is potentially, uh, something that everybody sort of has, you know, goes through or can, can reflect back upon. Uh, it, it's, it, I'm, I'm su- surprised that, uh, you mentioned your, your hometown had Chinese language in 19, when, would have, would have been early seventies. 74 or 70, yes, I started, so it was 1970, was the first time as well. Well, it, you know, it's called, uh, it was one of those, you know, you have this, this, this non-profit organizations that organize uh, evening courses, uh, some more practical, some pure for hobby, and uh, this guy, I think the guy who initiated this uh, was teaching Russian there. And, uh, well, at least for Russia, that, that was a market, of course, uh, during the Cold War. Right. But uh, he had this insight that China might be useful uh, or uh, would become hotter at some time in the near future. So this man was a little insight. And yeah. it so I think it was the very first evening course in Chinese in the Netherlands. Wow. It happened to be, so it's, it's a lot of happened to be uh, a lot of... Uh, Haphazard, uh, haphazardness. Uh, right. <laughs> we'll have you, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, Malcolm Gladwell and his, his outlier sort of theory where it, it kind of reminds me of that. We're like, you know, yeah, well, I use the word fate a lot in the book. Not that I'm, uh, uh, preoccupied with fate, but there were a lot of things. So when I started university in 1974 was also the year that the official, uh, exchange, of students between the Netherlands and China was organized. I was an official ex- uh, exchange student. Okay. So yeah. Selected and sent by my government. That was the only way to do things with China at that time. And uh, I was one of the first as well. I happened to be there. Right. And that was the time that my, of course, then, then my, my, my investment, my three years investment in an evening course uh, paid back very well because I was chosen uh, because of my grades. Right. <laughs> Freshman year, yeah. Now, so you, you went there already. The- how, how 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 well were your Mandarin skills at that point? Were I could speak Chinese very well, I may say, because when I entered, uh, when I uh, arrived at Beijing, finally after my forty-eight trip from Amsterdam to Beijing, much longer than uh, I, I devoted an entire chapter to that, uh, uh, I could have a s- simple conversation with the. Uh, school representative that picked me up there, but uh, there was a Dutch diplomat, uh, sinologist as well, was also there to pick me up, and he was quite amazed. I mean, it sounds like bragging, but he was quite amazed. <laughs> so his first reaction was, why, why, are you doing, why, are you, why are you going to do this here? Because you can already speak Chinese. Right, right. That's, uh, that's interesting. So uh, before, before you left, I mean, do you, do you recall like, any preparation or, or, or what was going on? Uh, with just what, what did you know of China other than you know you knew the language or what? What was your conception? Well, I think uh, in hindsight we didn't know much. First, I had studied Chinese language and culture, the official name of the course for a year, so we believed to know quite a lot about China already. But actually, what's going on? What was going on in China at that time in 1975? It was again as I. Uh, my, my, the book, the, the phrase that I use in the book is secluded empire. Oh. Our press, and I think it's in, in both sides of the Atlantic, our press was quite, like now I can say quite biased, of course, it was communist and therefore bad. It was something like the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe were bad, so China was also, must also be bad. But actually how bad and in what way uh, this Evil was typically Chinese. No one could tell. There were, of course, and people knew about the culture revolution, about young people walking the streets with the little red book in their hand, shouting slogans. And actually, one of the other reason, apart from my good grades, that I was selected so easily is that most of my fellow students did not even sign up to be selected to mm. be sent to China because they were afraid or discouraged, uh, not afraid, maybe, but discouraged about all this publication about China at that time. Right, right. And so you you had no apprehensions or you were just, you know... I was brave, of- I guess. I was. I, I still am. Not, oh, not brave. I just, when I want to do something, I just do it and I'll see what happens. I'm, I'm confident that I can, you know... And of course, I'm confident that when your government sends you to a uh, region to study for a year, uh, as part of an official agreement, 
between two governments that I mean, you will not end up, you know, being beaten up or, you know, imprisoned or, or whatever can happen to you. I was quite confident that right. it was. I mean, the worst that could happen to me was that I would end up at a campus. Right. Uh, that it would be very hard to leave the campus and we were very surprised that we were extremely free, at least within the city limits of Beijing, to, to, to use the bus and walk around from day one. So Yeah, well, why don't we, what happened to that? What, tell us, uh, you know, when you got there or, or how, how did you get there? What was, what was that like? Well, well, uh, we flew with KLM, of course. You get this, you know, that's part of the, it's our, our national carrier, it still is. It's, and, uh, but nowadays, I, of course, I fly about five times a year. And you are Beijing or Shanghai or Hong Kong. And Beijing is nine hours, nine and a half hours. Hong Kong, 11, uh, 12, and Shanghai somewhere in between. But at that time, it took me 48 hours. It was a TC8. And of oh. course, you may not even know. Uh, you know a TC8, but you have, probably haven't seen a TC8 in the inside. Right, yes. But it's a flying bus for us. I mean, our terminal is a flying bus with... Uh, something you use in uh, domestic flights. Uh, so it was Amsterdam, uh, doing it by art, uh, Athens, uh, someplace in the Middle East, uh, uh, Pakistan, it was uh, uh, Rangoon in Burma. So I saw a lot of small uh, exotic air strips, right. airfields, and then end up in Hong Kong, uh, 10 o'clock in the evening local time. So the hotel was booked for us. We slept there for a night, and then the next day, take the train to the border, the Hong Kong Chinese border. Right. Get off the train, walk with the suitcase in your hand over a small wooden bridge to a small village called Shenzhen. And now, of course, it's the Shenzhen Special Economic Zone, a million city with millions of inhabitants. Right. right. Uh, then wait for the local train and take the local train to a city called Guangzhou, Canton. Yeah. Picked up, of course, by someone there already. People knew that was there. Then take another flight from Guangzhou to Beijing. So it was about 48 hours. Right, right. And who, no, who, were, who were these other uh, people, these other students uh, with you on this trip? Well, this particular trip, uh, we were two, two Dutch students. The other Dutchman was not even studying in, uh, in my own uh, university, not in Leiden University. And then he was a Dutchman studying at uh, uh, School of Oriental and Asian Studies, so as in London. Okay. But he applied because he was Dutch and uh, he wanted to be a diplomat and he became a diplomat afterwards. And I think he made a very good impression with the committee, the selection committee, so he was selected as well. And both of us uh, made a trip almost to the end, but when we are in Hong Kong, he noticed that his suitcase was in Amsterdam. But oh. He preferred to wait for another day in Hong Kong to yeah. enter China with his uh, luggage, which right. is probably very sensible. So I arrived on my own in uh, okay. Beijing. Uh, well, yeah, that's that's that happened, yeah. So what uh, when you get to Beijing, uh, what what sort of reception, what kind of welcoming do you, do you guys have, or do you have? Well, there was the, the teacher was. Well, they were all called teachers. It was the guy in charge of the foreign students. But in Chinese, you call them teacher because they are an official of the school that was picking me up. So and he was there. And there was some from the embassy. That's something, of course, that would not happen to you nowadays. Nowadays, you arrive at the airport and you will uh, try to find your own way or you're uh, taken <laughs> up the routes. But when we were met with a, it was very official with a car and a driver uh, driven to school. So it's... You know, for I was nineteen then, so for a nineteen-year-old uh, uh, student, of course, if you feel very, uh, very comfortable, it's very, it's far, far cry from this, uh, all these ghost stories that you, we were uh, told and that we could read in uh, in the media. China, yeah. we were VIPs actually. We were treated like VIPs, of course, and we were VIPs in the Chinese eyes. Right, right, yeah. And this was the the first student delegation. Uh, since I, I guess in from from maybe Western Europe since um, since when or when yeah well since I think there were there were not really there were not probably there were exchange kind of exchange students and uh, some students went to China on their own in the fifties sixties because they liked China that's just the other type uh, the, the 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 zealots the the, the the what I call it also in the book the leftists mm -hmm. when the people want to be in China to study in China because they you know for political reasons. Yeah. But I think I was the third part of the third batch of European students uh, 
that started in China in official way, or official in the line of official exchange programs mm-hmm. since the establishment of the People's Republic of China. So I think before 1973, the only foreign students in China were those non-Western students, that is. Or the West, sorry, the Western students were those who were went there for political reasons, and they, you know, they went there on their own. They went to, they sought uh, out the Chinese embassies or uh, whatever the representative office they were, and uh, they went there for political reasons uh, right. on their own account. But we were, I think, it was 1973 that the. Uh, Exchange started, uh, and yes, as you meant right, Europeans because they were not Americans yet. Right. right I think exactly. from both sides, I think the American government was not encouraging, uh, to say the least, uh, student American students to go to the PRC. Yeah. And China was not ready yet, I guess, for an exchange program like that. That changed rapidly, of course. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Soon afterwards, but at that time there were no Americans, no, it was Europeans and uh, many non-Europeans, you know, from Right, right. Uh, developing countries. Sure, sure, sure. With uh, with Mao's sort of reach out to the developing uh, quote unquote third world, I guess. Yeah, well, they were different types of students, of course. I mean, we had students, uh, African students or students from Southeast Asia, who went to China to study uh, metallurgy, mm-hmm. uh, medicine, uh, and the apex was uh, an Albanian student. Okay. who went to China to study Spanish because he would not be able to go to Spain yeah. to South America to study the, the only country Albanians would be able to study the only foreign country Albanians would go to to study wherever was China so it were funny 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 things that you it was and yeah. it was funny and interesting way we were interested we were out there, I was open that's I'm extreme I'm not a political person I've never been but it was interesting it's interesting to observe this kind of uh, uh, anomalies that an Albanian would study Spanish in right. uh, in, in, in Beijing instead of uh, Madrid or Barcelona or uh, you know, what have you. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that was politics for you. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, we, yeah. we forget that yes. not too long ago uh, in, in sort of our history, uh, just with, with this political shift in the world that uh, sure. uh, it's pretty amazing now. I mean, you can, basically, students are all over from everywhere. It's oh yes, of course. And as soon as the Americans came, they came in all hundreds and more of them. But that's, of course, it's uh, there is a lot of interest. It's, right. It uh, was the only, for me also. It was the, I've never met an Albanian before, so uh, you know, you you wouldn't meet Albanians in Western Europe. So yeah. it was. Uh, it, we didn't only learn. I, it's, part, it's also part of the book uh, in many chapters. Uh, it's not only we didn't only learn about China. Uh, we learn a lot about. Uh, the world and uh, other peoples, and uh, uh, yeah, it was uh, so. From that point, that view of well, it was a, a, a much more comprehensive human uh, uh, experience. Uh, apart from, uh, of course, learning a lot about Chinese, uh, speaking Chinese very well, and uh, you know, learning about the country by looking and talking with people, but we learned so much more. Huh. Absolutely. So, wh- which uh, which university were you were you kind of stationed in in, in Beijing? It was not a real university. It was called the Beijing Language Institute. Nowadays, it calls itself a university. I think it's the, the official name now is Beijing Language and Culture University. Okay. But it's, it's called the Beijing Language Institute (BLI), and uh, it was well, what it is a language school. So it was a school where foreigners learn Chinese. And it was set up for foreigners to learn enough Chinese to f- go to a, Chinese, a, a real university to follow courses in Chinese. Right. So it was originally set up for these people from developing countries. Um, okay. You can imagine that you are from Uganda and you're sent to China to study medicine. You need to learn a lot of Chinese in order to follow courses in Chinese about you know, yeah. medical topics. And then since 1973, it was open for Western European and Japanese students as well. Right. Special classes for uh, for Westerners to study Chinese, okay. and, uh, and so they did a very good job, I must say. It was a very good uh, good school. Okay, yeah, that's that's quite interesting. What uh, when you're at the university or this uh, school, is it like a compound? That, that... yes, okay, yeah, campus. Uh, we were housed in a campus building. It's still there. I've visited it recently. Okay. Some changes, but it's still it looks very old. So it's a uh, old building, and we know uh, it was a, a dorm. With two people uh, in a room, uh, first half year, I shared a room with us with the other best friend, and I think in January or February we got Chinese roommates, which was also quite amazing that they let us 
share room with a Chinese. So that was another uh, surprise. Right. Uh, uh, and yes, there were Chinese studying uh, a number of foreign languages. Sure. Mainly elderly people. Well, elderly, of course, are not 50s and 60s, but in the 30s, typically people who needed a foreign language for their job. Uh, I guess that's also the reason why they were very confident to uh, to uh, expose them to uh, a bunch of European uh, right. young European students with all their parties and uh, uh, and all the things. Of course, that's another another theme that's all over the book. Of course, then you have these young Europeans in the 19, 20, 21, 21 <laughs> was trying to emulate as where you emulate uh, your student life in, in Western Europe. Uh, right? How did that as, work? As well as we could. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, were you able to to replicate it or? or well, you know, you know it, it involved beer and wine, and of course, when I uh, and that was available, there was beer in China. It's uh, uh, no uh, no potato chips all the time and all, but there were things to uh, to uh, to uh, liquor was cheap. It was uh, vile. Most of it is horrible uh, Chinese pie Joe, <laughs> uh, very strong, 50-60% alcohol. Right. But well, we stuck to beer, and that's all right. And uh, well. We had these parties, I mean, not every night, we were drunk all the time, but uh, we had these parties and uh, no one objected us having these parties. In that respect as well, we were quite free to do. Uh, we were not winning the building or anything, but we had parties and uh, quite a few uh, big parties. And, okay. uh, we, you know, we did things and we went out to dinner. Okay. Uh, we sought out. I, I, I quickly developed a small group of students, like five, six uh, real friends. Uh, their names pop up as well in uh, most of the chapters. Sure. And one of our hobbies was uh, checking out restaurants. Uh, eating was cheap for us. And, uh, and again, it was open. We took a bus and we had bikes, some bought bikes, and we actually were given bikes. Uh, we were lent bikes by the Dutch Embassy. Very nice suggestion. Right. So we were cycling around and we were uh, trying out restaurants all the time. Uh, so it was actually quite... Uh, yeah, what was it like? I mean, just riding your bike around Beijing, was it... Would would you cause a stir just sort of being there? Or by Look at this. Uh, sometimes you uh, would draw a crowd. Uh, it was right amazing. It was more intense in uh, other cities. We made a trip and, uh, during the winter holiday Chinese, around Chinese New Year. So you would draw a crowd somewhere. But it was okay. I think that it was quite... Uh, quite pleasant. Uh, we draw attention, but not, uh, not excessive. Right. Uh, it's also the behavior. I think some of my fellow students drew more crowds than others. It depends on how you behave, of course. Uh, I try, usually, and still do, try to blend in. Uh, every now and then, I, I, I sit out small places. Well, I was in Tibet for the first time uh, only this year, in June. Oh, wow. uh, so I seek out smaller places. And, uh, well, people notice you, but you can behave in a way that it's uh, that's almost like natural. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you're here. It's it's, it's the the mid seventies. Just the fact that probably not a lot of foreigners are, are there in the first place. But then you add on top of this that it's uh, uh, this insane moment in history uh, yeah, called the Cultural was Revolution. The final year of the Cultural Revolution. We didn't know that, but it was the final year, and so in hindsight, of course, you know that there was quite a lot of no. The, Local politics was really fermenting, and you you, really, you wouldn't see that uh, very explicitly. But in hindsight, we were given signs, and we could see signs and read signs that you know, China was not as stable politically as it uh, appeared to be uh, right. on the outside. So, so a lot of things happened, and of course, the biggest event was January. I think it was in January. Uh, the premier Zhou Enlai died. The man who had been Prime Minister of China since you know, since the beginning, since right. uh, because they have elections and all these things, so uh, they never change a winning team. <laughs> right. And uh, the people were really sad. There was another politician who died in uh, only a few weeks before in December. Uh, there was a little commotion, but people were quite. Uh, uh, there was not really a real reaction, but when Joe and I died. Uh, we had a few teachers uh, spontaneously start and broke out and breaking out in tears wow. during classes, which is quite uh, quite strange, of course, for us to show these emotions. 
what in Indonesia. So we then, you know, this man has disliked, was liked. Uh, genuinely, it's not a propaganda. On the other hand, of course, we are also joking uh, that people throw out in tears because the only decent politician had died. So now the, that's the joke we made. Yeah, we made jokes, of course. We were able to crack jokes, actually. People let us do this. Uh, we were not try they were not trying to impregnate us. Of course, now the Chinese people were desperate that the, uh, they were in the hands of uh, all those uh, radicals who had led the Cultural Revolution. Right. Uh, Mao was dying. We knew that. Uh, so, yeah, this entourage around Mao, who was now in charge, and Zhou Enlai was the only moderating factor in Chinese politics at that time. Right. And he died, so... So, what, uh, you, I saw in the, in, in the book that you had met, uh, sort of consoled Zhou Enlai's wife? Yes, well, that's what I told you. We were for your VIPs. We didn't always appreciate that at that time. But uh, <laughs> the next day, we were asked to get in the school buses again. Uh, they took us to all kinds of places, of course, sightseeing, but this time they took us to the uh, hall in the Forbidden City where John Lyon's body was uh, was placed and uh, surrounded by a few high politicians and uh, the next of kin, of course, wife. Uh, we, sorry, we made our round uh, to shake hands with all those people and... Uh, uh, and of course, there were a lot of other, a lot of Chinese before us and after us. Mm -hmm. But those, even those, of course, those that that crowd was only uh, a fraction, less than a percent, or less than a percent of a percent of the Chinese population who were doing this. So we were quite. We should have been more honored than we felt at that particular moment right. to be able to shake hands with the top leaders of the country right. because the prime minister had died. Well, uh, now we, we were really regarded, I think, by the government, uh, we foreign students, as, as especially the Western exchange students, as a kind of diplomats or, yeah, right. yeah diplomats. Right. With, yeah, yeah. Was, was Mao there? I mean, did you get once in Mao? Or? No, no, he wasn't able, it wasn't bad. I think most of the time he was not able to get up. He was a, a plant. It's, not, it's very disrespectful to use that word, but he was, a, what we say in Dutch, he was a plant. He was a vegetable uh, at that time already. And of oh. course, he had the, what later would be called the Gang of Four, his wife, Right. And uh, her three closest associates were not there or either. I think they didn't wouldn't want they didn't want to show their face, uh, because Joe and I actually was their greatest the biggest enemy at that time. Right. Was, I guess of course in my terms the moderating factor. Yeah. Okay. He was out of sight and uh, later people started to put up a wreath of flowers on the main square of China, Tiananmen Square, and they were hanging poetry uh, in praise of Joe and Lai, but also, that's a very Chinese way of doing things, of course, poetry that contained hidden messages. Right, yeah. Hey, people, get out of, get out of there and you know, give way to, uh, to, uh, to the people, to, uh, to other factions. Uh, that culminated on April 4, April 5, I think it was, that was the Qingming festival, the festival, what we would call Old, old Souls, okay. uh, when the Chinese celebrate their, or honor their death and uh, clean the graves of the ancestors. And the night before, all the wraths were taken away and all the poetry was taken away by the police uh, on account of the, uh, well, the, the, the current government. So, de facto a mouse wife at a concert and then a rally broke out a riot even in uh, those years yeah. so in that year it was uh, April early April 1976 that's uh, yeah that's, that's yeah. we know about the Tiananmen incident that was 89 1989 right. I was in China as well at that time for a company okay wow Slater, yeah but this was the first Tiananmen incident right, right, right. in uh, April uh, 1976 and it's all and then, of course, that's one of the that's an occasion where these political uh, struggles were uh, uh, surfacing right, behind the scenes, literally uh, to the main square, and uh, people were attacking the great hall of the people. Uh, this was, of course, slain down. People were arrested, and it was quiet very soon. And you didn't hear anything about it, but uh, yeah, yeah it was, it, so that's it. Was yes, that's the turbulent year, right? It was probably a couple. Yeah, 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 it was. Oh. Uh, I, a couple years later, when you know they, uh, I guess they, 
they throw the, the gang of four in, in jail and, and Dung kind of comes back. So uh, yes. you were you were right there in the mix of that, which is just amazing. Yeah, we had this slogan after that, after the death of uh, Joey Lyons, so before the riot, uh, gradually slogans would appear uh, about a certain running dog uh, of revisionism or whatever slogan they had. Uh, and we already guessed it was Tang Xiaoping, and then the name Tang Xiaoping came out, so Tang Xiaoping fell then for the second time. Right. So when I entered China, Tang Xiaoping was still in the part of the government. He had already been banned once and <laughs> brought back. Right. And during that year, so in the period after, right after uh, John Lai's death, he was uh, demoted again. He was the bad guy again uh, yeah. because uh, his protector, John Lai, was not there anymore to protect him. Right. Wow. That, yeah. yeah. That's that's. Uh... It's quite fascinating. Can, can we jump back though? Uh, you know, we're talking about all this uh, political. You know, these these big moments. How about when you're interacting with with the locals? I mean, did they have any sense of uh, sort of talking about the these things that were going on around them, or these incidents that were going on? Or? It was difficult. It was difficult for us to speak to people on the streets. Yeah, we went to shops, let's say, the restaurants. We had discussions. Uh, there was a restaurant near the. Uh, back entrance of the school where of course many of us uh, had uh, lunches together within groups and there was a guy a waiter who liked to talk to us uh, but uh, I think we also engaged in self-discipline uh, or censorship if you want to not to bring up extremely controversial things right. uh, uh, we spent a week uh, that was also part of course of the that period, we spent a week in a commune, so a rural commune, or, or in Chinese terms, a people's commune, so we, that's just part of the lessons. Right. Uh, so we, and then we could speak to people, uh, some of these commune members of the quote farmers, uh, uh, but no, we didn't engage in political conversations. I think the most political conversation I had, I, I mentioned that in the book, was at the end of the winter holiday, uh, which we... We traveled uh, by train all the time. When we did the train back to Beijing, we spent the whole night there, and I had some discussion with teachers. And this teacher started, a female teacher started uh, on her own, on her own account, to uh, criticize the people in Shanghai that we had visited. Oh, wow. But I don't, I'm not sure whether it was this famous uh, Beijing against Shanghai huh? this <laughs> right. feud or it's a political feud. We have this thing in the Netherlands, uh, Rotterdam people and Amsterdam people. I'm sure in the United States we have people. Uh, well, yeah, north and south. Sit, yeah, north and south. You have people who know they're different. You, you, know, you don't know what it's about. People themselves don't know what it's about. But when you are from A, you don't like people from B and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, so, no, no, we, we didn't have big thoughts. There was, let's say, in, in our lessons, in our class, the regular class that we had, that were not, not, the teachers did not, the school did not attempt to, uh, you know, to change us or indoctrinate us at all. Okay. Uh, so, they had already given up on us, or it was part of the policy, or these Western European students are here for, you know, learning about China, you know, in an open way, but we are not going to change, or try to change their minds, or, uh, so, in, so what we, we were very grateful for that, it was one of the fears. Right. We had that we had a lot of politics, but no, we had not. So, what, what were the what were you getting taught in the classroom? Was it just language, or were there were also politics courses, or just general? Well, it was it indirect? Uh, usually, all mornings. Uh, was quite, we had full days, five full days, and uh, Saturday morning, so it was quite a wow, heavy wow. Uh, schedule. But it was good. It was, uh, in all mornings, uh, five mornings, we had uh, language lessons. It's a book published by the school. Uh, you know, with the text and new vocabulary, grammar, and all this stuff, you know, the, uh, the taught in Chinese, of course, so we were literally immersed, and then in the afternoons, we had one afternoon, we had, uh, it's called uh, literature, so we were leading, uh, reading uh, parts, uh, chapters from novels, poetry, parts from uh, plays, and those had political content. Right. But, so, we were indirectly exposed to political content, but not uh, the politics were not really, uh, really discussed, and we had some. But we had sessions with Chinese students who were studying English, so we spent one hour speaking English with them and one hour speaking Chinese with us, and uh, that was very pleasant. Right. We even had, I'm writing it in the book as well, on Saturday mornings, we even had classical Chinese. Okay. And I'm sure that people who are familiar with China don't know what it is, but I think the best uh, comparison is that in Europe, people used to write in Latin, 
they would speak Dutch, German, French, Spanish, Italian, etc. But they would they used to, to write in Latin scholars, you know, until right. the, even the 19th century. So in China, you had classical Chinese, which was the written language for ages, uh, while the spoken language was mainly that spoken. Right. Uh, until I think 1920s, very uh, very late, uh, the, the vernacular language, the spoken language, became the national language. So uh, when you study Chinese seriously, you study China, whatever aspect of China, you have to learn classical Chinese. But we were surprised that classical Chinese, we had two hours of classical Chinese, and uh, yeah, I think we were the only class who had that on uh, my, my group. Right. Uh, it could be part of the fact that one of the political movements was that to criticize uh, Confucius. Right. That, that's, yeah, yeah, it's, you, you laugh about it now, but it, that was uh, taken very seriously. It was taken just before I went to China. It was a new campaign, criticize Confucius. And when you criticize Confucius, you have to read Confucius, which is in classical Chinese. So people started reading classical Chinese uh, more than uh, in the years before. Right. Well, I mean, now, you know, just in the 70s, you know, criticize Confucius, but now, you know, in 2000. It's different, yes. It's now it's completely turned around. Confucius is completely uh, in again. It's yeah. a model. It's a he was, model. It was a statue of Confucius for I think half a year or something at the. Right, he was rehabilitated. <laughs> I think <laughs> that was taken away because it looked hideous. It was a mistake to put it there. It was uh, it looked horrible. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Can, did you get a sense of who these other students were that were with you? That these Chinese students. Uh, well, uh, finally we had a, a roommate. We had roommates, so we got to know the roommates a little. Uh, they were well, we were in our twenties typically, and they were in the thirties and forties. Uh, were they? Uh, I guess like were they party members or were? They- oh, probably uh, they were in companies. Uh, people, probably people who had to deal with foreigners or to negotiate with foreigners. And uh, some of them were engineers who had to uh, to to read. Uh, foreign literature, oh, right. or, uh, mainly English. Uh, um, uh, they didn't take part in our parties except once. Yeah, okay. That was very right about that. And my roommate immediately got drunk <laughs> and fiercely criticized <laughs> about that. Inside oh, he was room with me present it was very nice. That's a nice scene in the book. Uh, but uh, yeah. yeah, we talked to them uh, about anything. They were very. I think they were very well. well Instructed not to. Uh, they were very open in one hand about themselves and where they lived and other families. And but again, I think we were also ex- uh, exercising extreme uh, self censorship. Yeah, yeah right. either by fear or, or that we didn't like that. We didn't want to hurt people's feelings. And uh, uh, well, so the, the, the context was very shallow. I think also includes even the teachers. We had a class teacher, so as our, our my, my my group had a. A group teacher, group leader, call them. Uh, so a teacher was attached to us, uh, our mentor, right. if you want to. But we really didn't know much about him. Yeah. Uh, hmm. we, I think we kept it that like that. Yes, we were. We could have been more inquisitive. Yeah. But yeah. we didn't know what would be the result of being more inquisitive. So uh, how about we? We left it like that. But I think we've. We talked about China a lot, about, about ourselves, what we saw and what we liked, what we didn't like, what we believed. Uh, we interpreted, of course, we were academics or, or uh, becoming academics. So we, most of us, of course, the European students were sinologists. We were studying China, right. China and Chinese. We were interested in China. Uh, that was quite different from the students from the third world countries who went to China or sent to China. Right. right. They were not even there. Not all of them were there on their own free will to <laughs> study as typical subjects. So... That, that, was, that was the big schism, I think, between uh, so the, the, the Europeans and the Japanese and a few others from uh, some other countries who were studying China and Chinese, interested in the country, and those who were studying Chinese to study whatever there was their major in China and were not really interested in the country. How, how about with these other foreign students, especially, you know, maybe you know, mentioned that Albanian student or these other third world country yes, students? Well, Albanians of course were special. They had a special relationship with China. Right. But uh, there were quarrels every now and then between African students and Chinese students and Chinese people in the streets and sometimes with teachers. Uh, Chinese, I have to be careful what I say. I say they're not racist, but uh, towards people with very dark skin, that's also part of, uh, of course, there are in Chinese, traditional Chinese uh, uh, 
uh, uh, superstition. There are people with black faces are usually bad people. Uh, mm. uh, on the other hand, the behavior, typical behavior, very open behavior of many Africans uh, conflicted with uh, the more closed, you know, keep to yourself behavior of Chinese. Uh, so there were much more conflicts, right. there were more conflicts between, uh, for instance, African students and Chinese students, or even people on the streets. Quarrels. I think. Yeah, that's. Uh, uh, we tried to avoid, and we did avoid quarreling. Okay. But, uh, How about with your other fellow uh, foreign students there? Did you guys get into politics or this other stuff that you were seeing or going on? Well, yeah, no conversations and. Well, you know, students, I think, even on both sides of the Atlantic, we like, we still, as students, young students, still like to talk politics right. and discuss and debate. And we did a lot of it among ourselves in our rooms together during the parties, during the dinners, during the lunches and the uh, breakfasts. Uh, we, had three, we had three meals a day in the, in the student dining hall. The student dining hall played a very big role in, the, in our life. It's also in the book. Okay. Uh, it was not just for eating, it was for socializing. Right. So soon we had tables of people who liked each other. We had a table of people who were interested in China, but not in from a political motivation. Right. But there were Westerners who were very motivated. Those were the people. The most funny, one of the funny things that I mention about them in the book is that Christmas is in a few days. So on December twenty-five. 1975, at breakfast, there was a German uh, girl and uh, a Swiss boy uh, carrying their books to breakfast, as they would always do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were surprised when he went to books and said, we're going to class. I said, hey guys, did you know, look at the calendar. <laughs> it's Christmas. I said, no, we are not Christians. We are going to class. <laughs> but our teachers had told us that we could stay away from class at two days. Right. Because they knew. Right. And of course, secretly, we believed, and I'm sure that was right. We were right in believing that that they were happy to have a few days off themselves. <laughs> so right. you can imagine, but they had to go to class at least once to show their face because. Right, and yeah. so you can imagine, uh, we were trying to imagine the faces of their teachers and their group when they went in. Students because they had to teach them. I'm sure they only taught them for an hour or so and uh, let them go. Uh, so this kind of extreme behavior. To the people I call the leftists, that's what you had in uh, among. Uh, there was a, a small minority of European students, but they had the, uh, the Japanese didn't go to classroom on December twenty fifth, and even some of the Muslim students didn't go to class on uh, December twenty fifth because they celebrated any right, <laughs> just any occasion. A day off is a, is a day. Yeah. Off. So, uh, but there were people like that. Yeah. So um, how okay, we respected them. We respected them, but but you know, we at least uh, on the outside. But these were uh, right. We, we really took. We, they were funny people. Uh, so, you don't do things like that. I'm sure our teachers didn't. The teachers didn't appreciate their behavior. They're going to class on the December twenty five. Right. Right. No, uh, Chinese are are very patriotist uh, patriots, and they expect other people to be patriots as well and to respect their own, your own culture and uh, you know, to live by your own rules. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, How about, um, you know, I, I guess kind of wrapping up your, your, your trip in China, yeah. what was it like to sort of leave or to go or was there sort of a, a decompression period before you left or anything? We weren't given, we weren't given this. Uh, talk about turbulent year, so at the, uh, we already had bought our tickets Again, Beijing, Guangzhou, and then Guangzhou, uh, the tickets to uh, Hong Kong. Right. And Sam was waiting for us in Hong Kong. And we were ready for to spend the second last night. And at four o'clock in the morning, I woke up. And my first thought was, who the hell is knocking on my door at four o'clock in the morning? <laughs> and then I saw my roommate already standing at the, uh, at the window and said, Wake up, it's an earthquake. So it was the big earthquake of July 1976. Wow. The epicenter was not in Beijing, it was in Tangshan, an industrial and mining city. Near, not far from Beijing, but it was so big, it was probably one of the biggest earthquakes in the, uh, in the century. Right. Wow. Or ever in human history. Uh, also in terms of, of casualties, of course, but the, the earth was really, uh, 
shaking and uh, was like in, like a wave. I've never seen an earthquake. My roommate was coming from an area north North China where they have earthquakes, small earthquakes regularly. Mm. So it was it was a crack in the wall, and we ran down. Of course, uh, I had some stuff with me, my passport, I think my tickets. And you, that's what you do. You, your mind doesn't work properly. Uh, right. Function properly in, uh, when your building is. Uh, shaking from an earthquake but I took some stuff with me and I was wearing my uh, wearing clothes actually uh, I could see the, an Icelandic student uh, we had two of them as one Icelandic student run, run completely naked in front oh of me my God. with all his underpants in his hand which he put on uh, just before <laughs> leaving the building oh my God. Uh, and we spent the, end, the last our very last day at the Beijing Language Institute uh, mainly in the dining hall uh, it started raining as well and in the bicycle shed and walking around a little when the rain stopped uh, so that was goodbye saying goodbye yeah. for the school for us so Something the day like that we uh, expected to say goodbye shake hands with the teachers and everything we uh, spent we were in total disarray at the, the, the final evening, we were allowed to spend uh, in the building as well, but not on the top floor. I was living in the top floor. Right. Uh, we were allowed to pack and bring our stuff to the second floor, I think, and we spent the night in the second floor. Yeah. Uh, and then left. Uh, the airport was intact, so I uh, left Beijing uh, uh, in the plane that I had bought tickets for. That was not a problem. Right. But it was right. very hectic. So even the very last day at the school and... Uh, was uh, extremely turbulent. Yeah. Uh, so I think the, that word is uh, very well chosen. I think. Wow. That's. Uh, but so. That's a yes. send off. <laughs> that's some send off you got. You had. Uh, yeah, that was that was uh, incredible. Uh, although in Guangzhou, then I spent one night there. It's, so in, on the way to China, we spent the day and uh, a night in, in Hong Kong. And on the way back, we spent one night in, uh, in Guangzhou before we took a plane in, uh, from Hong Kong. We met uh, one of our fellow students who was traveling then, uh, and he didn't know. He, uh, he had heard rumors about that something was going on in North China, but he didn't know. And also the hotel staff. So uh, news of this huge earthquake didn't travel very fast. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. But as soon as we boarded the train in Hong Kong, oh, we got from the, uh, we ended the border f uh, formalities and we were back in Hong Kong and boarded a train. We were attacked by journalists because we were the first people, at least the first Westerners coming from uh, from Beijing, from, from the uh, earthquake area. Right. So it was almost two days afterwards. Yeah. So we, that's another another uh, turbulent experience. So instead of uh, sitting down uh, in the train enjoying the scenery uh, to Hong Kong, uh, we were interviewed by local newspapers and uh, local TV. Uh, uh, it seems that they expected uh, horror stories, but there was not much horror going on at our school. Uh, uh, the biggest horror was that my uh, my uh, transistor radio had fallen down from the cupboard <laughs> and didn't work anymore, but didn't function anymore. Right. But no, and yeah, and, and oh yes, uh, uh, an Ethiopian student. Uh, who also was used to earthquakes in his hometown, jumped from the first, fourth floor instead of you know, using the stairs and broke his leg. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that was not very nice. He survived. I've seen him later. Actually, he visited the Netherlands later, years later. Right. But, uh, so I think the journalists were a little, a little left us a little disappointed. Right. right. Uh, so you keep in contact with uh, a lot of your cohort, your student that you. Yes, I kept in contact with that student, obviously, but unfortunately he died very young. I think he was 46 or so when he died of cancer. So, uh, But I ran into a, one of my, uh, the intimi, what I call the intimi, the, the group of five, six people that really became friends. Uh, I met a Finnish colleague student twice in China, once in a hotel lobby and once during a conference. So he's now... Uh, a professor in Helsinki. Uh, I met an Icelandic student, one of the Icelandic students once he became a diplomat. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing, yes. And uh, years later, I married a Chinese lady. And uh, this year, we, we celebrate our 30th anniversary in well, Beijing. Congrats. Uh, and uh, one of the guests was one of my fellow students from Australia. Okay. who is spent half his life in Australia, half his life in China. He's doing China things, of course. And uh, yeah. and he married one of my classmates, in, uh, an English classmate of the uh, of the uh, Beijing Language Institute time. Uh, and very recently, because of this book, I found out very late, but 
that's happened that there is an, uh, a Facebook ah, right. group of students, <laughs> foreign students studying in China between 1973 and 79. Right. Yeah. And, and of course, I immediately, I immediately joined and uh, I... Uh, Really found quite a few of my fellow students then, and uh, so uh, yeah, that's fantastic. That's I fine. guess it's the age, you know. We do things, uh, a lot of things, and we have a lot of endeavors, a lot of goals that we want to meet. And then when you're in your fifties, suddenly you start looking back. Uh, that's also why I wrote this book uh, in a rather uh, yeah that's advanced that. age. I mean, not old, but still, I could have written it much earlier. But I, I don't know if I could have written it much earlier because you need a certain uh, state of maturity to look better. I went back to China for half a year for my first. I have two two PhDs, uh, one in arts and one of the, uh, one in business administration, with fourteen years in between. But for my first PhD, I went. To, I did some research for half a year in China. That's in nineteen eighty one. Okay. Yeah. I taught Dutch in Peking University nineteen eighty two to eighty four. Mm-hmm. That's when I married. Okay. And then I left academia for a while. I joined a Dutch company and was sent to China for five years, uh, 1986 to 1991. Wow. So I've seen China move on. Yeah, um, uh, then after my second PhD, I joined the, this university again on part-time basis. I still have a company and consulting business. I do this with, now I'm engaged in business administration, still doing uh, research in China. So I spend about three months, three to four months a year in China doing all kinds of things doing business, so business consulting, doing research, teaching, so I've kept in touch. And, uh, yeah, I feel, you feel like your sort of, your life has been very informed by oh, yes. important decision of, of studying Chinese at 14. Right, and the decision was made only or primarily for studying a non-Western language, it could have been uh, anything, uh, but it turned out to be Chinese, so... Uh, and now we can discuss whether it's fate or there's a higher power, but I think we're not interested in uh, that discussion, at least not here. <laughs> Maybe that's the, that's the next book. Uh, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so any, any concluding thoughts on this uh, uh, one turbulent year? Uh, oh, I'm very happy that I made this decision to sign up for that course, uh, even though China was this secluded empire, etc., with all those people, with um, all those uh, revolutionaries, with little red books. And that I didn't wait, like some of my fellow students at that time, for a few, a few years later. But I'm, I'm very happy that I made this decision, that I was able to uh, uh, experience this final year of this Cultural Revolution period. Right. Uh, because it was it makes it's, it's makes you, my China, my entire China experience so much more richer. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, do what you want to do, take your chances. So if there is this Chinese course, take it. Uh, if people offer you to go to China for a year, do it. Jump on it. Yeah. Uh, if people offer you to teach in China, teach Dutch in China, which of course never was be my, my uh, uh, never was the thing that I would expect to do all my life. You do it. Of course, you do it to be in China. Right. Uh, you know, grab opportunities. I think that's one of the lessons uh, that you can take, even if you're not interested in China. Uh, yeah, that's fantastic. And it, and I think like. You you were back there in, in the mid seventies and such a different time. But now we look at China today, and it's it's almost, I would imagine almost a whole different country. Yes, well, actually, when I talk to young Chinese, okay, I, we have Chinese students here in Netherlands, and I teach Chinese students sometimes a few times a year in China, and also in, in my business life, I meet young younger Chinese Chinese even in their twenties, thirties who work at companies, and uh, actually for them. When their parents talk about the Cultural Revolution, it's like when I heard my parents, when I grew up in the 60s, to talk about the war, uh, which of course was the Second World War, for them it was the war. Uh, but for me it was something in the past, and for young Chinese, the Cultural Revolution, and communes, and uh, all this stuff that's really gone to the countryside, uh, that's their parents' stuff. Uh, they know about it, but they really don't know what it feels like, and of course, I, my experience is not like that. Those young Chinese were really sent to the country. So, but at least we had, I had savored that time, right? That that, that, that period, and uh, well, it's a, it's a very rich, uh, rich experience, and uh, and I draw still from that uh, in whatever I do in China with China experience. It's uh, well, and, and, and as I say, now just thinking about 
how many students are, are flocking to China. We kind of mentioned before, before the interview, we were discussing this. And you kind of helped pave the way for this. Uh, yes. Actually. Well, actually, when I observe European and now, nowadays, of course, many, 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 many American students, uh, Western students, let's use the word, I must say, I'm, maybe I'm too critical. They spend a lot of time in bars. You have bars now. And uh, a lot of spend a lot of time with their own people doing things. Uh, some mix with Chinese, some have relationship with Chinese, but on the average, I think they have a lot of, there's a lot of more student life now, and they do a lot of more things with themselves than uh, with other people. So when you talk about, when you compare the uh, relationship we have with local Chinese, fellow students, Chinese students, Chinese teachers, Chinese in the streets, uh, there is not that much more interaction than there's before mm. there is definitely is more, but I think it's students are still are, are still more secluded and, and, and not that more involved in Chinese society right. as we were because there's so much to do. Well, now it's easier. That's to not say like it. student life in Europe or in the United or in North America, uh, and of course, student life is, is is attractive when you are a student. Right. Yeah. So, okay. uh, well, that yeah, I think that's something. But I don't want to be critical uh, to them. I think it's it's <laughs> you you you. It's it's not easy to to jump into a to immerse in a society. And I did my own immersion. Of course, my wife is born and raised in Beijing and uh, still very Chinese. But that's happened when I was teaching Dutch in right. the early eighties. Uh, so a few years later, when China had opened up for a while and. Uh, that I could do a thing like that. And I think that's worth another book. So, so that, uh, of course, is, uh, I think, still the, the basis of that, the roots of that, were grown in this year in China. Right. 75, 76. Okay. Well, that's usually the last question that we have on, on the network. Uh, okay. What What is next? What uh, Do you have any, another book? Do you have another project, another paper? What do you got, what do you got going on? Well, in terms of books, I just, uh, less than a week ago, I got the green light from Springer. That's a German uh, uh, publisher. Uh, I told you I have two PhDs. My first PhD is about the history of Chinese grammar studies. So the, the, the history of the way Chinese studied grammar. Oh, wow. It started very recently because there is not, no such thing as an indigenous Chinese grammar. Mm. Chinese started learning about grammar in the, in, in the course of the 19th century when they started learning foreign languages. That book has not been, that PhD has not been published published properly and I have done a revision and uh, I am still considered the authority on this land. It's a very small, of course, very narrow field. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought it was worthwhile to do a small revision and then again venture to contact uh, a publisher of where I had published before and now I got the green light. So that's the next thing. So and that's again something from the past. That's a PhD that I took in the got in, uh, in uh, 1986. Wow. But I'm very happy, I'm very proud that it's going to be republished in a revised edition and probably in a proper book. Okay. Yeah, yeah that'll be uh, I'm thinking of a, a book on Chinese grammar still, also. Not the history, but the grammar itself. I think grammar is still is uh, under, it still needs to be addressed more thoroughly in language studies. There are still too many people, even sinologists, who claim that Chinese does not have grammar, which is nonsense. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I but that. I want it to be a fun book. Right. Not just, no, so not a grammar book, not a, not a reference book, but the book, the grammar book you can read, something like Fun with Chinese Grammar. I see. I think it's about 70% ready as in a manuscript. Uh, uh, and of course there is the, the, the sequel. So it is the sequel, and the sequel will be, uh, of this book will be not the half year of research, but the two years that I taught Dutch. Okay. So it's a year, that was the, the, the time that China really opened up. Uh, and was also so it was also turbulent in another year. China was the Chinese were learning so much and sucking up Western culture so so quickly that they sometimes choked on it. Mm. Uh, and uh, and I was there teaching Dutch of all languages. I mean, who on earth in China would want to learn Dutch? <laughs> I guess a couple. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> we are also patriots, but who wants to learn Dutch anyway? There were people who learned Dutch. That's also a period that wants that that's that's worth a book like this. Right. Oh, but let's first uh, stick to promoting and selling this book. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Okay. I hope this interview helps. 
Yeah, no, this, this has been really great. Uh, I do appreciate it. The story is so fascinating and, and worth a read for anyone interested in, in China or even just education, international students, international education. I think there's all sorts of avenues. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I spent some time. I spent quite a lot of time on, uh, on how they taught us and how the teachers were really trying to teach us. They were doing a lot of working very hard with the limited means that they had. So it's it, yes, it's also about education, definitely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, Peter, thank you very much for uh, joining us, and I uh, encourage the audience to go check out uh, Peter Pavarelli's "One Turbulent Year: China, 1975." Uh, from Book Scout, and uh, we'll offer a link to that. And uh, Peter, thank you for joining us. And uh, it's great, it's great. It was an interesting experience. All right, fantastic. Uh, and uh, thank you, everyone out there. And uh, hope you learned something.